Welcome to another week of Surviving Creativity with your hosts, Brad Geiger, Scott Kurtz, and I'm Corey Cassoni. This week we're joined by cartoonist extraordinaire, author and illustrator of Family Man and Bite Me, as well as the other writing half of the webcomic PvP, Dylan McConus. Remember, Surviving Creativity is made possible by listeners like you. If you like the show, if you like what you hear, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity and please consider becoming a patron. We gave you a little homework last week. Go watch the Penn & Teller documentary, Tim's Vermeer. We've brought Dylan with us to the show to discuss it. We're talking the essential questions of art here. What is art? What is creativity? Is using physical and scientific means cheating when you're creating fine art? Yes or no? And what does that mean for the future of art in a digital era where we've got all of these tools at our disposal? It's a thought-provoking episode this week with an amazing guest. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Surviving Creativity. Step one. Three, two, one. Oh, I forgot to clap. <laughs> what the hell, Brad? I was all, I was, I was in, uh, uh, enthralled. Yeah, you yeah, know, I was, I was entranced as well. <laughs> Everyone clap when the beat drops. Everybody clap now. <laughs> Right. And I'm Why sitting we... here with my hands just poised. Now, now <laughs> you shouldn't be three, two, one. And I'm sitting no. here like, like Mr. Burns. I was Burns. kidding that time. Scott, you've got a viable second career. You're the worst, Brad. <laughs> You'll never be a dubstepper. Oh. Well, you know, it, it's so funny because did you just tweet about how you're, how, or, did, did I, or were you we talking how your dad didn't know what dubstep was, but he knew how to describe it? No, that wasn't me. Ah. My dad won't know what dubstep is no matter what. <laughs> and you know, it's better that way. Yeah, no, I like this world. I want to come to this house where no one knows what dubstep is. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a mercy. I the only one that was super confused when dubstep re-happened? Like, and, and then was super confused when people were talking about, okay, so if this was dub, this was the new wave of dubstep happening for me. People started talking about dubstep. And I, like, you know, social media or whatever. And I went like the like the late, the, the weird late 90s. This is such a Corey thing to do. B-side <laughs> shit. Like, I just went, what? Like, are people listening to old, like, you, seriously old wobble bass? Fucking hipster, dude. <laughs> I know. Like, I you couldn't like, understand it. Like, I mean, I knew of dubstep from when I was in Japan. No, 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 no. It, it wasn't. It was seen. It's, it wasn't like that at all. It was, I literally thought, I didn't realize there was a revel, like, like a, a new wave of it happening. I thought people were suddenly just interested 
in a super old, and it did not take no, off. But back what then. happened? What happened was a pop star incorporated it into one of the, her songs, right? Like there was a dubstep scene, and then Katy Perry put dubstep into a hit, and then it uh, became. All right. Then it was in movie trailers, like you know, like it's like. The Avengers fight the dubstep machines. Man of Steel fights the dubstep machines. The Transformers fight the dubstep machines. <laughs> I remember it happening in the movie trailers. Yeah, because it's like, Clark, look out. I have to save Krypton. <laughs> it all happened after Inception, right? Inception was the first big dubstep. I guess I just didn't realize thing. it was a thing. Like, I didn't think that wobble bass in movie trailers meant that it was be- happening in pop music i wasn't paying attention uh and then was very confused when like when it was like i don't know then, then people were making jokes about it and i thought they were making jokes about the 90s i was very confused for, <laughs> for like a year i was really confused well for the longest time i thought dubstep was a group i really did i really did and i'm like i'm like and i kept trying to like look them up on on amazon and itunes and stuff because i thought well you know they (laughs) they must be very good (laughs) (laughs) results don't make any sense we're we're all aging we're aging the shit out of ourselves right now except for dylan who won't speak to it (laughs) because she only knows one dubstep oh i don't know a single dubstep not you, a single one. Well, what you do is you put your right foot in, and then you put uh-huh. your right foot out. Look, I've been old since I was five. <laughs> your mother, your mother confirmed that. If you're yeah. confused yet, uh, we have um, talented uh, cartoonist Dylan McConus joining us this week. Woo! Um, and we're talking about dubstep, uh, and then we're going to talk about <laughs> Tim's Vermeer. <laughs> oh wait, this is surviving creativity. That somewhere at the I bottom. say it in the beginning. Oh no, that's right. There's a six-minute intro to every one of these podcasts. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's required by the FCC. It's true. For yeah, in order to podcast, in order to maintain our radio license, we have to do it. The PAG, the, the Podcast <laughs> Actors Guild requires. Nice. You have to have light jazz. Yeah. <laughs> I Although I I wouldn't say that our no, jazz is light. It's big jazz. band. It's a big band theme. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And. Yep. Uh, Walking baseline required. You have to nail the post. Uh, well, listen, I I will say that uh, I, I think that first one that I did, I nailed the crap out of that post. But I do <laughs> have a real appreciation for how good Corey does the NPR delivery in his talk-ups. I mean, it is I, I, it, it literally makes me feel like I'm listening to FM radio. It's 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 spot on accurate. I think I've done it too many times at this. I'm I'm actively now trying to find new and interesting. There's only so many ways you can say become a patron and and you know like find us on iTunes like at some point you just run out of variations of the same sentence. Oh, become yeah. how Ira Glass feels. Oh, that poor man. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so anyway, we're talking about a A, documentary. Documentary. Called Tim's Vermeer. It's a Penn and Teller documentary. It's Penn Penn Gillette and Teller produced this documentary about a friend of theirs named Tim uh, Jennison, who has a lot of money and a lot of time (laughs) on his hands. Yes. Uh... And a lot of brains, just extra brains. Uh, he's coming a very out smart everywhere. guy. Yeah, 
He and he he kind of got in on the on the. I'm trying to remember what he did that made him so much money. He invented video toaster. It, oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh my god! And I got I got to admit this at the as long as I'm making uh, you know uh, shameful admissions. So last podcast, Corey says, "Yeah, this is the guy that created video toaster," and I exclaim, "I was just thinking about that the other day." I thought video toaster was. Oh my God! You thought it was the Afterburner screensaver. Oh my God! And I had honestly been just thinking about whatever happened to those flying toasters. You don't see them anymore. A friend of mine had a desktop wallpaper of those toasters. Oh, well, he. Uh, I just I just Seriously. looked him up to double check. He's one of the founders of uh, New Tech, and yes. their products include Lightwave, TriCaster, Three Play. Uh, a lot of big tech products uh, yeah. for, for of, yeah, some CGI, of the stuff. Yeah, video technology. Video technology, absolutely. Anyway, yeah. the guy's got a, an almost infinite amount of money to to spend his time doing whatever the hell he wants. Um, and he's convinced that Johannes Vermeer, who's the Dutch painter, used optical tricks to paint his to to paint his paintings. So we've all watched this documentary, and today we're going to discuss the, you know, what is what is real in art, and what is fake, and what what is cheating, or is there cheating? Oh man, I'm so, worried we're all going to have the same opinion on this one. We probably are. I, I, <laughs> do you I want me to pre- do you want me to pretend to have the opposite opinion just to add some flavor? <laughs> just to add some flavor. You don't know what my opinion is. What's your opinion? I don't think he did it. You don't think who did it? I don't think he actually painted the painting. Really? That Tim, Tim, Tim Jennison? Vermeer. I don't think Tim actually made that. What? Really? It's. I mean, the amount of time. It, uh, okay. I just don't. I don't. I don't fathom it. Like I, I mean, maybe I think... it's just such an amazing feat. I'm having a hard time. But Scott, you've been drawing the same comic for over 15 years. Sure, but it's my livelihood. And yeah, I love had an infinite amount lo- of money already. No, I understand that, but I love doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. love the process. Well, how, you don't think he he got a bug up his ass and? Yeah, I think he got a bug up his ass, but I just. You're saying somebody set somebody set in for him, which would I mean technically would be possible because the the idea is that, uh, in, in at the time. Uh, when these, when the you know the masters were making paintings, I guess it would be like the 1600s ish, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they had the the technology had just come along of like lenses, and there was some debate from a couple of books that that the masters, you know, these great painters of the era, were sitting in dark rooms with a little lens in the wall, and on the other side of the wall were. Uh, were the painting they were painting. So like people standing in position and then on the wall inside the dark room, the lens would take the light in the image, turn it upside down, project it on a wall, and then they could trace the image and then paint it. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's basically a reproduction of how your retina works, where an image comes in, hits the lens in the back of your eye, gets flipped, and then your brain reverses the visual signal. Sure. And uh, I know Hackney had a book about it. There was another another famous artist who had a book about it. And when these guys first postulated this about the masters, they were not – the art community was not happy about it. You're basically saying that that all the people who've ever created the best art in the world were essentially cheating 
is kind of right. how it was seen. They weren't actually painting this stuff. They were just tracing or whatever. I argue with your characterization, but go on. Well, well okay. <laughs> but essentially, yeah. And that was what people were saying to these guys about their books. Uh, Vermeer, his paintings captured a certain level of, of uh, light that was capturable by photograph, but not capturable in oil paint. And Tim Jennison, the guy who did this, he argued that uh, uh, there must be some other trick. There must be an a, additional well, he, piece of he, optics. He had uh, he had an expert, an ophthalmologist. He had some eye scientist on there saying that a human eye can't detect right. these different levels of light. That this looks like a photograph because this looks like something a, a camera would record because a camera is capable of capturing that, but the human eye is not. And if the human eye isn't capable of seeing it, then how could it be reproduced via a painting? Sure. Well, let's let let me uh, asterisk on that because I just watched the movie last night, so it's very fresh in my mind. Good. Um, it's it's not that the human eye can't see it; it's that the human brain doesn't have a light meter inside of it. Oh. You can't. Oh, okay. You can't have two values of light and inherently know which one is brighter than the other unless you see them relative to each other. So unless you have mm-hmm. those two swatches held right up against each other. And part of what they found interesting in the paintings was that there basically were values of light that were absolute in relation to each other. So there were there was just a level of granularity in the depiction of light mm-hmm. that would be. It, it, that would be hard to explain being processed through a human brain that is doing purely observational work. So it wasn't it wasn't the <clears throat> medium of the oil paint that made this an impossible task. It was just that the human mind has limited observational capacities right. when not working from just a direct objective comparison of two swatches of light against each other. So what Tim did, and and the thing that makes me tell you that you may not know my opinion on whether this is cheating or not and cheating Mm. is the wrong word but so at the very beginning he takes a black and white portrait a very small painting or a very small photograph and he places it on a table and then or no the paint the portrait goes stands up vertically in front of him Mm -hmm. yeah he props it up he props it up then he puts his canvas on the table in front of him and, and behind the, the canvas he's painting on is a little stand with a mirror. And so you kind of place yourself with your head over the mirror, and I guess it creates the optical illusion of when you look in the mirror, you can see you can see essentially a portion of the picture that you wanted to paint, but now it's transferred down. You can so, see, yeah. You can see both the mirror and the canvas. You can see at the both same the time. mirror and the canvas at the same time. So essentially, you could trace the photo by just moving your head a little bit, and just exactly where the canvas and the edge of the mirror line up, you just take your paintbrush and match that value. Right, right. And the way they described it is, if if the edge of the mirror disappears, you know that you've got that hue perfectly right. 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 So, so what he's constantly doing is painting at the edge of the mirror line, trying to get that edge to disappear, 
And then I would imagine, what, moving the mirror back and forth across the image. And since he's working in oil paint, that stuff doesn't dry immediately. So he's always working it and reworking it and reworking it until he finally has a very uh, uh, high-quality oil painting. So, yeah, it's chromatic matching. Yeah. At the end mm-hmm. of it, he lifts this thing up, and he's got a, a pretty impressive painting. Yeah. And and for him the concepts of mixing paint and putting paint on canvas and dealing with brushes and learning how the brush works and how the paint sits on the brush that's all new to Tim. He's not an artist in any sense. But what they do first is they have Martin Mull, the comedic actor <laughs> come out who's also a painter. Right. And Tim shows Martin this process and Martin who knows his way around painting takes his stab at it in, in a much quicker fashion because he's familiar with the materials, I think. He replicates it. Or at least part of it, right? Yeah. So, but my question is not whether or not that's cheating, but my question is at that point, are you painting? Uh, and that's the question that's central to the, to the, to the argument of art is, is this painting? Uh, and, and in fact, they, they do this twice. It's very interesting. And, and it made me think of this again when you said at the top of the podcast that uh, you didn't think that Tim actually did this painting. And here's where I think you're wrong. Uh, or here's where I think it might be a clue that you might be wrong. And that is that they kept saying at, at least once or twice, this is not subjective, this is objective. In other words, those two guys, when they were painting, they took turns painting the same image because it didn't matter who was holding the brush. It was a mechanical process that they were going through to make this art. Um, uh, so so I, if, if it had been true that Tim didn't do the painting, I don't think that he would have had any problem. In fact, it would have strengthened his case uh, about the objectivity of the process for him to say, yeah, and I didn't even do the whole thing. I had three or four assistants, and sure. we all took turns doing this thing. Well, the, And the end result of the documentary is that he, he recreated a room that, uh, that Vermeer did the majority of his paintings in. Uh, oh, it's so inspiring. The, just the insane amount of work he put into recreating <laughs> I know. the sure. studio. So he he bought he rented a, a, a warehouse. A warehouse, yeah, in San Antonio, Texas. He cut a wall out that faced the same way that Vermeer's studio faced. I mean, well, first he went to to Deutschland, right, and well, and basically went to the place where Vermeer painted all his paintings and saw where it was and figured out all the buildings on the other side of it. And he, he cut out when he, and he, when he was in Texas, he cut out replicas of the buildings and put them outside of, I mean, he went to the nines to replicate the light, the value of light, the interior of the room, the entire, the entirety of the painting mm. he recreated in this room. And then Furniture. he used optics to project the image, uh, onto a, a wall the same way that, that you would have in a dark room. And then he used his little mirror, his I think it was a 40-degree or 45-degree angled mirror, over a canvas and just slowly recreated the room from top yeah. to bottom. And it was an exact replica of one of Vermeer's paintings and That's then showed crazy. it to people when he was done. And it, I mean, it was exact, exact. And, well, and it does bring up the question of objective versus subjective in in art i mean right. me as a non-artist especially today with the tools that we have with manga studio and, and photoshop and you know a, a wacom tablet and everything could i sit down open manga studio and draw as well as any of the three of you without actually having any technique without actually 
knowing or doing anything. Could well, I sit down and do it? what you want to draw. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, if, you, if you want to trace a, really a photograph, right. that, yeah, you could do a great job at tracing that photograph. But, but I think one of the things that um, Tim in the film points out and that they, they skip past a little quickly for my taste mm-hmm. that he points out that this composition is all Vermeer's. Yeah, exactly. Like he replicates the composition, the colors, the arrangement, the scenario of this beautiful painting. And to me, that's where the artistry comes in is that this is a stunning image, whether it's taken as a photograph or whether it's translated into paint, it, it is beautifully composed and that's not something that you can necessarily cheat. Yeah. Well, right. and, and, that's, it, and, and that's the answer to your question, really, uh, is if you, answer, if you open Manga Studio Pro, you would only be as good as the materials that you're able to get to work from. You might be able to do an illustration, but could you do a cartoon uh, which has, uh, you know, a, a joke or a storyline or, you know, could you do a larger piece of art? Not unless you had access to that too. There is there is that central spark of creativity that goes into all art that I think is definitive. Well, it's sub, it's subjective also. Cartooning is subjective. Can that subjectivity be learned? I mean that that's the next question, right? Because I know that there have been multiple studies about someone who is a master at something, and and the argument tends to to fall on the side of if you do something for long enough, you will reach a certain level. That is beyond the level of most people. Now, whether or not you can reach that master level, I think is still up for debate. But, uh, you know, if I decided I wanted to be a golfer tomorrow, if I golfed every day, all day for enough hours, the data, the science falls on my side that I could be a competent pro golfer. Now, would I be a master? Would I be Tiger Woods in his prime? I, you know, I don't know. That's debatable, right? Mm hmm. You would have you would have to have started a long time ago. Right. <laughs> well, I mean that's but what I'm saying is um, the guy what Tim did was I don't think Tim ever argued that 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 um, you know composition and, and the artistic value is in the Vermeer. I think all Tim questioned was the the process by which he painted it yeah. was the concept that the masters weren't some superhuman people born with this ability one in a million that get to do this, you know, and see these amazing, they have a light meter in their brain and they're just born that way and they're savants and that it's okay that they were experimenting with lenses and camera obscuras and stuff like that. And that they, they use that to paint these masterpieces. The thing that drives me nuts is that I love art like, I love drawing. I love sitting down and doing this. Mm-hmm. And I would have given up halfway through this thing. Like, I just, the undertaking of it, and I know it took, I think at the end they say it was like three years from starting to completion. Yeah. But it seems to me like just the painting itself would have taken that time. <laughs> the painting itself took around like 150 days. Yeah, it took it took about half a year. Half I think. a year to paint this thing. To paint it. Well, yeah. but uh, don't forget though that he was also depending on natural light. Uh, no, so the amount of time he could actually spend each day painting would have been limited. Absolutely, and I mean, I, if I were him, I would never sell that painting. And when he when he took it to the English guys that wrote the books. Um, that kind of started this whole thing. I kept... Did you guys get a good read on how they felt about it? 
They were very reserved, weren't they? I, they, they, they did. They, they were, they were congratulatory and they were warm. But at the same time, it wasn't like Eureka, you've proven your point. They were, they were, they used very, very measured words, as I remember. I well, think Tom, Tom Hackney seemed more interested in it to me. The the uh, British artist who wrote, I think, the second book about mm-hmm. the optics. But that's because. I mean, I think he's in the twilight of his career. If you, if you follow art or know anything Listen, about art, they, these guys don't need. He's preaching to the choir with these guys. Okay? Right, right. He doesn't need to convince them that they used optics. They no, they they know they, they used believe optics. it. They know it, and and I think the most telling, and this is what's really exciting about it, and where Tim went a step further than they did because he actually investigated it, and I think the coolest part of the movie is where Tim finds a mistake in the art. In oh real, yeah, in the original Vermeer, and there's an optical error. Yeah. There's an op- <laughs> he realizes he's created an optical error because of the way his head is tilting or something. And then he realizes it's the same errors in the Vermeer. Uh, it, it, what happens is that because the lens has some curvature, it, it can be difficult to re- actually create straight lines on the image. So when he was roughing in an, uh, a harpsichord, a virginal that was in the painting... He made sure that the lines on it were, you know, perfectly horizontal. But then when he was painting in the very delicate filigree, there was a slight curve to the filigree that came through the lens because of the lens distortion. So he was painting it onto this perfectly straight template, mm-hmm. but he was painting the curve onto that straight template. And he corrected himself. He went, oh, that's that's an error of a lens. But then he went back and looked at the Vermeer and looked at it from a very particular raked angle, and he could see mm-hmm. that although the virginal, the outline of it, had straight lines, just like he had drawn, the pattern on it was indeed slightly curved from the same, possibly from the same type of lens curvature. That, to me, I think I think if I was Tim, that day would have been so exciting for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. what a confirmation yeah, that, that's of everything you've been working on. Right there. That's when you say, for me at least, beyond a shadow of a doubt, okay, this is, he's he's cracked the code. He knows exactly what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, here. that's I that's when he probably felt the closest to Vermeer. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, Because like, it's one thing to replicate the effect, but when you unknowingly replicate a mistake, that's ironclad. You know, there's there's no way he could have just fallen into that. I would like to. I would have liked to have seen. And it's unfortunate because an artist probably wouldn't have the determination. But I would like to see someone who knows how to paint try it. Mm-hmm. And well, I, I'm and sure there's somebody doing it right now. Don't you think? I don't know. I you don't. I hear don't know. About I don't know either. That was my next thought. Is like, well, if you can do this, I mean, clearly we can do it with computers, right? You can take a you can take a photo, drop it into Photoshop, put a you know put a couple of layers on it, and call it a painting and print well, it out. You and, can take a photo, period. Yeah, photography like, well, didn't right. exist for the Dutch masters. But that's what I mean. Is but like what I'm saying is what people I, don't paint paintings like the masters anymore because there is photography. I was well. That's that's not true, but it, it but it's now viewed through the <laughs> through the lens of the contemporary art mm-hmm. world where representational art has a very different place than it did at the time of the Dutch masters. Right. Uh, Angie, I was telling Angie, like I never painting, I've never learned how to paint even watercolors. And I would like to, in my later years, take time to learn how to paint. I mean, I know my well, I, I knew my way very well around pen and ink, 
until I started going digital. And I guess I still do technically, but it's not the same as physical media. But it wouldn't take long for me to... If, if someone said, oh, there was an EMP pulse and you have to go back to paper and pencil or paper and ink, I'd be, <laughs> I'd, it would take me a week, but I'd be fine. Yeah. Um, but I just never learned how to paint. It's such a different skill and I'd like to do it. And I was saying to Angie when he was painting that little black and white portrait, I'm like, oh, I want to try that. And she says, yeah, that you, you, you know, you want to learn how to paint. And my first response was, well, this isn't painting. Yeah, interesting, it's, right? Well, because yeah, because like I could do that all day, right? I could do it all day, Winston. All day, all day, <laughs> Winston. Winston. Uh, well, I could I could take a drawing, right, uh, or a photograph of something, and then do that, and then but then I still didn't learn how to paint. Okay, so the que- so that becomes the next question that I might have learned how to handle the materials comics. and deal with What's oils that? and stuff. That actually brings us back to comics, though, because if you say that, then are you also saying that an inker? It goes back to the inker argument: is he is he just a tracer, or is that inker an artist in her own right? I think that okay, so. We had a big discussion one time about the process of taking a beautiful sketch and wrecking it with ink. <laughs> and why your sketches, your finished art never looks as good as your sketches. And yeah. the determination that we came to, and it was a, a, a friend that brought this up, is that the reason why a sketch looks so good is that your brain takes the sketch, which is very loose, and it finds somehow, instinctively, in the six or seven lines per section of the drawing, it finds the right line. Right. And if not, it's, it's, there's enough lines there that the sketch looks good. But the minute that you choose one, you mm. might have chosen the wrong one, and now it's wrong. Or it might be that two of those lines make the one right line. Mm-hmm. And your brain is putting them together. Exactly. But the second, the second you apply ink to one of a them... A sketch is an optical illusion. Okay? Sure. So, um, to me it seems like um, the sketch is more like what Tim's doing. Well, no. No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah. Tim's doing the right. opposite, right? So, there's no... With Tim, there's no... There's no sketch. There's never, um, there's never a bigger picture aspect to the piece. There's never a conceptualization. Yeah, he never just sits down and looks at the paper and goes, "Okay, how do I want to do this?" He he right. can't, because at one point at the end, one of the British guy goes, "You you," or I think even Tim said it. I've atten- I've essentially turned myself into a camera. Right. Mm-hmm. He's just recording. Yeah. He is he is there to record what is supposed to be there. And that's his job. That his job is to look at the edge of the mirror where it hits the paper and start putting ink until the edge of the mirror disappears. And when the edge of the mirror disappeared, then he has hit the right value and he can move on to the next section. And I mean he's essentially just be doing the job of a computer and where's the joy in that? 
Ah, that's a great, I'm so glad you used that word because that is a, 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 an important part of this whole thing too, is, is the, the joy, the creative satisfaction. That's what would, I, I had a really hard time watching uh, that, that section of the documentary where it's just him painting. Oh, it was murder. Oh, yeah, God, I, I almost had a panic attack. Me too. I actually, I actually, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't want to sound like, uh, you know, like I was poo-pooing the, the documentary, but I could have actually watched the first 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes and been perfectly happy. That that middle part where, you know, he's cutting the lathe in half because he needs a longer chair leg and stuff like that was like, oh, God, just get to the painting. And then he got to the painting and I'm like, oh, I just want to see this thing done. Uh, it, but it, there was no joy there. You know, he even, they've got, it, they did a really good job of, of being honest about that, where he's doing the little dots that represent the threading on the, uh, 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 some kind of, uh, you know, fabric, right? I, I'm, I'm not using the right words, but he, he's going dot by dot, literally pixel by pixel. Uh, and he just looks up at the camera and says, you know, I, 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 I so don't, I, if I never do this painting again, I'll be happy. You know, there's no joy. So, well, I, I think we all are having, a, okay. So Corey said that he watched that portion of the movie, which goes on for a while. It's super agonizing. Oh. He watched it and he's like, yeah, I could do that. It looks See that, nice. And that's funny. It was not agonizing for me at all. Whereas, not even a little bit. Brad and Scott and I had the claustrophobic, oh my God, reaction. And I think that is a sympathetic reaction we're having because we all do an art form that has a lot of tedium in it. Yeah. And a lot of, because the inspiration in cartooning or illustration is a very small portion of the time <laughs> that you spend on the end product, right? Well, and that's like, the portion you enjoy the most, right? That's where people are always pumped. Is when the that's where you happens. That's when you're like, yeah, yeah. And then you do the work and go, God damn it. What Some, was well, I sometimes thinking? the inspiration is, is, you know, scary because that's the part that, you know, requires the most of you. And that is the, mm. the most ineffable in terms of capturing it whereas there are days where i'm really glad if i just have a rote illustration task to do if i am just sitting there doing book spine book spine book spine yep. or crosshatch crosshatch there is like there is a compulsive satisfaction in that kind of work that you'd better be able to find some satisfaction in it if you go into our line and, of employment. and compulsive is the exact right word for that you've got to be a little bit compulsive to do it but yeah. so, oh, so let me let me let me bounce this off you because the, the timing on this was perfect for me because uh, 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 well, geez, it, it started in May, so this will be two months now that I've been a hundred percent digital in my process, and I, I I struggled really really a lot with the whole thing that 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 this documentary talks about. In other words. I didn't want to cheat even though I was using digital means. So the first month, the first four weeks of strips that I did digitally on my on my Wacom was uh, I, I would do it exactly like I would be doing pen and ink. Wait, define I would, cheat. I, I, what's that? Define, define cheat according to well, okay. what, what's here's, cheating in here's your process. Ex here's exactly what I mean. So I get done, you know, doing it exactly like I would with pen and ink, and I realize, you know, I'm 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 facing some deadline pressure. I'm behind where I need to be. Bop da bop, and I realize that if I just give in a little bit and do my backgrounds separately, I can just copy and paste those backgrounds 
and I don't have to keep redrawing them every time. Mm-hmm. And I, it, that's, that's what it was for me, was coming to grips with the fact that it was okay to do that. And then that, every now and again, I would take somebody's torso and I, 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 I would uh, obsessively change things about the torso so it wasn't just a uh, copy and paste uh, of, the, of the foreground. But it was saving me a ton of time drawing all of that. And before I knew it, I had a whole process, and I was. I, it, if you check in on, on Evil Ink this month, I am so freaking proud of July's strips. It's not even funny, and it's a lot of it is because in so doing all they look terrible. Such a shit move. I'm so sorry, Brad. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> No, but seriously, I, I'm so satisfied with the way it looks, even though it took me a good solid month of hitting my head against the, the wall because I didn't want to cheat. So I've come to the I've come to, I guess, some kind of peace with it that if it is cheating, then I'm gonna allow myself that cheat because the results are really great. So here's the thing, Brad, and, and I'm glad you've gotten over it because if 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 you draw, because I'm looking at these strips right now with uh, lightning last in the park, and I can mm-hmm. see that you drew one nice big long background of the park, and you've used different a- a- sections of it depending on the scene for right. a couple strips, and you're struggling on whether that's cheating or not. But if I were to say to you, we're going to go to Pixar, and I'm going to show you this scene they're filming for The Incredibles 2, and it's set in a park. And someone built the park. Do you expect them to rebuild the model for every frame? No, absolutely not. Okay, so it's the same thing. Here's 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 where I think the wording gets confusing. Okay, because I think a lot of people react to what they perceive as lazy as cheating. Mm-hmm. And I think I think especially other artists. Uh, maybe get judgmental or kind of pissy when they think someone is getting lazy, you know. Instead of instead of lazy, use the word efficient. No, no. <laughs> then listen, that that's different. Okay, that's very very different. Okay, because there there are things that I have done to my art that needed to happen for workflow that is efficient, and then there's things I've done because I'm lazy. All right, and things I've done because they're they're aesthetically pleasing, or I like them. And there's there's one thing that people are polarized on in the PvP readership that I have used both as a lazy get things done quick, and also because I aesthetically like it. And that is the reverse silhouette panel. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. the reverse silhouette panel is something that I learned from Gary Trudeau, and I fucking love it. And yeah, if I love you it too. if you look at Doonesbury. Just go to Doonesbury. You'll find Doonesbury online, and I defy you to find one strip that doesn't have a silhouette or reverse silhouette <laughs> in it. <laughs> yeah. He uses one every day. Um, and it's effective as hell. It's super effective. Yeah, I like it. I love it, aesthetically. I also love it because it's so easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we, had a, we had a fan recently 
collect data from the last year or so oh my god (laughs) he was like he's like look some people doodle during meetings i get bored and collect data and put it into graphs and he sent us a graph and it it was like of the silhouetted versus not silhouetted swips and it's almost exact about 20 percent of the time like without fail yep i mean it it's almost like in scott's head he so let's see 20 percent of a month of a month is 30 days that would be six days so like Every what like a a strip a week basically has a, a silhouette panel out of a five out of a five day week one strip is going to have a silhouette panel in it maybe two on a heavy week and it, I I mean it's per- I love it I think it's perfect it it always is in the right place there was um there was a year I want to say it was two thousand seven two thousand eight during the move. That I really wanted to push my artwork. I felt like it was stagnating on PvP. And I went way too heavy into photo reference. Oh, I remember mm. that period. It went so far into photo reference to where it was just a cartoon head on what looked like a traced picture from Getty Images. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, look- was like, when, since when does Jade have triceps? Huh, weird. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And so it's like all muscle ligature and everyone's. Yeah, it like, looked it- like it looked like um, a really bad Sally Forth comic <laughs> because that guy switched artists and then the fans went nuts. And so he just started drawing his heads on top of this other guy's bodies. That's how Sally Forth switched his art over. Um, So it was all these mismatched heads. And then I decided, okay, I've gone way too far in this direction. I'm going back to cartoony. And it was a really weird adjustment period, and I just kind of found my bearings again. And every time I look back on those strips, I get sick to my stomach. But I just remind myself that I did not have the time to sit around and just sketch and Mm -hmm. practice that, but I wanted to learn it. (laughs) So I just did it live. Um, but all that stuff, all that time I spent doing that has helped me in Table Titans. Well, and I, I would argue too, it helped you in PvP because I think going, I find with artists, I, I mean, in my maybe six to 10 years in this career, I've worked with a lot of different artists and I see this pendulum swing in the artists, right? Mm-hmm. They start at one end of the spectrum and then whatever that spectrum is that they're on as far as like art goes. And then they'll swing to the far opposite end of whatever it is they were doing. And then the pendulum will come back, but not all the way back, like maybe three quarters to half the way back. And then they're at this new space with their art and they'll do that for a year or two. And then the, then they'll swing the pendulum again. And then they'll like, they'll get, they'll feel like their art is stagnating and then they'll go crazy hard in a new direction and then not like that, and then back up, but only halfway. So it's like you see, you can watch an artist, their their artwork change. And I think maybe because I'm sitting outside of it compared to them, and they're inside it, they don't see it necessarily until they like look back through their work and go, oh yeah, it really was different back then. Or they look back and go, oh, I fucking hate that. Those mm-hmm. are the two <laughs> things that I always hear from people. But uh, And it's not always growth in a good direction. Like I, I know some artists where I prefer their their older style <laughs> their newer style yeah, here it comes <laughs> I wasn't directing that at anyone I was just saying it out loud I, I'm actually looking at your July strips right now Brad 
Mm-hmm. And I do see why you're super proud of these, man. Yeah, they're good. Strip. Oh, thank you. I think your I think your inking is super stronger. Well, you know what? You know what? It was also the ability to on the fly take something that I had done out of proportion or made somebody's head too big or their hand and, and just lasso that and transform yep. it and boom, fixed. You know, even even if I caught it at the sketching stage, you know, it's just it, it, it totally uh, sharpened up how I worked. And at the same time that I'm doing that, I'm going to turn this into a plug because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not above it. But I started, I, started doing, uh, <laughs> I started doing bonus cartoons for my Patreon page, right? And with uh, uh, Corey's voice in the back of my head saying how much he really liked it when I stayed loose and stuff like that. I'm trying to make it look as little like Evil Ink as possible. And just do, in a couple times, I just posted straight up sketches and people responded to them really, really strongly. Yeah. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm experiencing that thing that Corey's talking about right now, where it's like, okay, I can do good work if I loosen up and, and, and I don't have to, you know, I, I'm trying, I, I've been chasing the dragon of trying to draw like John Buscema all my life. <laughs> and, I, and, it's, and at 40 years old, it's time to realize that it's not going to happen. I've come as close as I'm going to come to it. And, and, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. And now I'm, I'm kind of allowing myself to, to go the other way and be loose and, and not worry about what, you know, if, if, if the dinosaur's legs are exactly accurate and, and if one of them has three toes and the other one has two, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loosening it up and, and it, and it feels great. Brad, I'm just imagining you sitting, lying on a couch with an analyst who's saying, <laughs> but how does Brad Geiger draw? <laughs> that is the journey that lies before you. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I knew. <laughs> Here, okay, here's here's a related question. It's a question for Scott. Mm. Uh, so I've drawn PvP a few times now. Yeah, you're drawing it right now. I'm drawing it right now. Uh, what is that experience like for you? I've had. I love it when people draw PvP. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's so. Um, <laughs> this is going to sound so morbid. <laughs> okay, I have a running kind of understanding with my wife and my brother of who to call if I die. Like, hey, guys, if I die, you need to trust these people to keep PvP going. Like, keep it going as long as you can. You know, try to keep it reprinted. Try to find someone to draw the strip. Try to find someone to write the strip. These are the people I trust. And, the you know, as your career goes on and you, you know, form and begin and end relationships with people... The list changes, mm-hmm. okay? And <laughs> you've been added to the list, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, 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 me, let me narrow the question down, because what I was really trying to get at was um, when I draw P- PvP, I'm intentionally trying to hew pretty close to the way you draw things. And I inevitably I have my own spin on it because I have different hands and a different brain. But I intentionally try to keep it very close to what you do. So I think my question is less, you know, what is it like to, to see your legacy or your characters done by other hands so much as 
purely the visual art component? Is it weird? I, I, usually, it... I usually don't like it when I ask an artist to draw a guest strip and they try to draw like me. Because inevitably they don't draw like me. And I would rather have seen it in their style than see them try to poorly ape my work. Yeah, it's Uncanny Valley. Right? It's like... You, all the parts are here, but you don't, you're not catching, like, I don't think you understand why I put that mark where I put it. Hmm. The weird thing about us is that you are the opposite. Like, you, you don't do the details the same, but you know where I would put shit. Mm-hmm. So it's got your flair to it, but you constructed it the way I would construct it. And so I'm, I, I'm very comfortable with it. Like, it's the truest, it's the closest I've felt to the spirit of someone aping my style. And that's, I don't feel weird when you do it. And that's why it was so weird when I had hurt my back and you did those guest trips with, with, um, with Khan and with, because even the design of Khan is like, I feel feel like i designed that character <laughs> it's really weird and um i just got a sketch from a project you and i are working on now with a little squid in it and i'm like oh my god this is exactly the approach i would have taken to the squid and Corey's like i know it's weird right and i'm like yeah it's weird <laughs> but um but it's not it's still a little different I it mean, is still a little different no it I is think it, it's definitely not that you're drawing like you you and scott are the same artist or anything like that it's this it's this bizarre um it's just aesthetically it works so we have another artist uh right now um doing a little pvp run and he's got like it's it's similar right like he's kind of got it he's got his own thing going on but at the same time it it looks really good there's a panel for a sample he did that's got a really cool background and it's like wow that's cool like that it but like the, the yesterday's PvP, um, it's it's oh God, I don't know how to describe it. But like I don't, you're not. I, I mean, I'm curious as to your process. Are you are you working on top of anything I drew previously? Or are no, you just not anymore? You're just using reference, yeah. Because like Scratch is sitting here with his arms crossed, and you tilted the head the way the exact angle I'd tilt it. You know what I mean? Like. The eyes no, and... at, at this point, I can draw a scratch on model from memory. Yeah, you were so on model. Uh, I've got a lovely Marcy on my scratch pad in front of me right now. Um, right, very excited about it. Well, but, um... Part of what I identified with in the movie, remember, we're talking about that awesome movie, um, <laughs> was a while ago, is the concept of turning yourself into a machine for replicating something or doing something similar that somebody else has done. And when I am drawing with the intent of emulating somebody else's style, for me, it feels very different from when I'm drawing something original in one of my own more natural drawing styles. Right. It, it, it really feels like a completely different process. I mean, I'm still drawing. I'm still making choices as I go. But I feel that I am a machine as opposed to an artist. Uh, yeah. And I can take pride in it, but it's the same pride I take from making dinner as opposed to that I take in doing a page of Family Man, which is, you know, my original work. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. 
the reason why I brought up that period of time when I was using all that heavy photo reference was I would get emails all the time from readers that told me to quit cheating. And it's like, <laughs> really? I, yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, guys, I, I'm, I want to learn how to draw more realistically, and I, this is just the way it's going to be for a little bit. You know, uh, but I think what they were objecting to was a disruption to their experience mm-hmm. of your yeah. work, not, very, very not the fact thing. that you're using reference, because I'm sure there are many times where all of us have used, except for you, Corey, where we've used reference and nobody was the wiser for it. Oh, absolutely. Because it didn't, because it didn't disrupt the reader's experience. And we none of us are doing work that is about our experience while creating the work. I, I would actually... When you said except for you, Corey, I'm I'm going to step back because I wanted to bring this up. It, it not not except for me. Mm-hmm. Like a, a big part of my job is, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Excel sheets or or running conventions or doing stuff. And it is not uncommon for someone in my position to go pull work from other people that have done it and use templates and use other people's, um, you know, uh, uh, it, expressions in an Excel sheet and use you know, sums and formulas and that kind of stuff. I'm not going to recreate that shit. Yeah, like nobody'd be like, you're cheating. <laughs> right, And that, but that's what I mean is like nobody's going to call me out for cheating even though, you know, when I do a, a you know, a, a yearly update to the business plan, I'm going to fucking pull a template for one from somebody else and that fits our model and use it. And then I'm going to use my old ones and ad- adapt and adjust them Moving forward, it's the same for publishing a book. Like I'm not going to send a, you know, a, a print order to a printer in China on some format that I invent for myself. <laughs> They're going to look at it like I'm a crazy person. There's a standard right. for that shit. So it, it's like, I think that in every career there is this level. You know, if you're filling out a TPS report, you're going to use somebody else's as a model. If you're writing an essay, you're going to use a five panel format and you're probably going to download a template for it and fill in the blanks. Like I, I don't understand why with art in particular and, and it's not just fans, it's other artists as well, that there's this idea of cheating of like, I think the problem, the big problem right now is that, and one of the things we've, we've lost with the net and I think it's sad is there used to be, um, a progression in an artist's life when they were learning, when they were submitting, mm-hmm. when they broke in, and when they were working professionally. And the work didn't get judged by the masses until they were working professionally. And so removing the gatekeeper was really great um, because it democratized art. But by removing the gatekeeper you also kind of removed some of the steps of the learning process. So, I mean, I can't imagine how different my career would be if I hadn't had all of high school newspaper cartoons, my college newspaper cartoons, submitting, going to conventions, trying to break into, you know, talking Larry Martyr at Image, working for a year on that comic and going to the Comic-Con in 95 and passing it around. If I had been started, you know, now, that stuff would have gone online, and I would have had 100 to 500 people liking it, and I would have figured I was done. Ah, but Scott, that is my career. Uh, My work 
my professional work that was viewable online began when I was 17 years old in high school. Mm-hmm. I still sell the book that I started drawing in high school. Are you serious? Yeah. Bite Me? That's my first book. I started that in my senior year. <gasps> what? Bite Me was yeah. your senior, senior year of when high school? I yeah, still remember I, when that came out. You yeah, go I fuck yourself, it, uh, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I finished we. it in college. I mean, it took me four years because I was going to school full time, so I did a page a week. But yeah, that's I drew that book pretty much entirely as a teenager. So, you know, you can sit there and watch the evolution of Tiny Dylan, and I get to sell that to people at conventions, which is simultaneously mm-hmm. joyful and horrifying, right? <laughs> You're the exception that proves the rule. Well, no, I, I don't think I am, because there are a lot of people in my generation who really got started online, and whether we've stayed online or have gone into publishing or animation. I mean, we all learned in public... And, you know, sometimes it's frustrating that our early work is still floating around there. But, I mean, we're not imprisoned either by it. That's good Uh, to know. know. Some people coast and, you know, never get better than a certain point. But I think for the most part, it's the internal drive to improve or to emulate something you like that forces you to continue learning. Not just, oh, I achieved a certain degree of success, so now I can just, you know, trace myself for the rest of my life. Whee! <laughs> I would like to stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> I never I, that I had no idea. That's so yeah. interesting to hear. It's still an interesting uh not dilemma though, but for someone like Dylan, you know, what are and I and I think technology has done this is like what are the steps now? I mean, draw the thing, put it online. And then any kind of improvement on that has to come from within. Mm-hmm. If it's coming from without, it's coming from your fan base. And that, as we all know, is not always a good thing. Well, but I think you also have more access to peers now, too. Sure, absolutely. You know, I'm I'm still friends with people who I met on forums online as a teenager where you would post your art for critique. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, both supportive and really helpful. Wow. People would be very That's honest. crazy. Brad, did you ever have that? No, that was not my experience so much. My experience was closer to yours, where I, you know, where I was doing stuff at high school newspapers, college newspapers, syndicate submissions. And then when I started, you know, after posting Greystone in on the web in 2000, then it was all... 100% web. So we're, here's a question for we're you. We're the Bill, old since, men of web comics. What? <laughs> the, the founders, <laughs> yeah, if you will. That's... So my question for you is, No, no, seriously, think about it. Like, it's a nice way to put it, but yeah, we're the old men of web comics, yeah. Brad. <laughs> I mean, the, there was a generation that did what you guys did, right? Like you guys went huh. through the submission process and then you were you were right at the right age where you saw the internet happen and to mm-hmm. you it was just a no-brainer like fuck it, I'm going to put this online. Dylan, you were like the generation right after them. So for you, was it immediately a no-brainer? Like, was there ever the moment of, I want to be in a newspaper or I'm going to do stuff for my school paper or that physical medium? Or was it just an immediate, like, this is just going to go online because that's what you do? Because I know now that is just what you do. Like, if you were to talk to a cartoonist now and say, well, aren't you interested, even if you were to say, aren't you interested in a comic publisher? They would like, no, I'm just going to put it online. 
Um, I wanted to show stuff to people, and the way I could show it to the most people was on the internet. Like, I, I have a, a go-to story of the first time I put up comics pages from Bite Me. I uploaded eight whole pages, guys. It was pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> it was because I'd gotten a scanner for Christmas. Uh, it was very <laughs> exciting. Uh, but I, I put them online, and I immediately got, like, 75 hits. Because <laughs> I put it on this forum that I was on. 75 hits, guys. That's there awesome. were 80 kids in my graduating class. So 75 <laughs> people who I didn't even know. It was really exciting. And I was like walking down the, down the hallway at school, pretty stoked about this. And my uh, cartooning class teacher, because I went to a hippie school, we had a cartooning class, uh, he wandered past me and he was like, Dylan, I, I heard the good news. Congratulations. And I was like, yeah, 75 hits. Not bad, right? And he went, no, you got into college. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. That. Yeah, that no, that's too. great. That's really great, too. I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, speaking about the younger generation still, it hit me uh, just the other day I was having a conversation with my youngest. And uh, he does not, he's eight years old, he does not want to be a, uh, uh, an actor or a, uh, you know, like a, like, like a movie star. He, he, when, when he describes what he wants to be when he mm. grows up, the word YouTuber mm. is used. I want to be a YouTuber. Woof. He want, it, it, that's the explanation of what he wants to be. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's, but what does what does that mean for fascinating. him? Fascinating. Yeah, that that's my question too. Is what does that what does that mean for him? Is he using that in the same way that someone that a kid fifteen years ago would have said, "I want to be a director"? He wants to be one of these guys that does independent uh, films and and like a lot of the stuff he watches. It's like a uh, a, a Pokemon walkthrough that oh, is is. <laughs> it's okay he's standing right here he knows i'm talking about him but uh but he wants but but it's like he watches these reviews and 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 walkthroughs video game walkthroughs and stuff like that and he's he, he follows guys like stampy long nose and, and and these pokemon guys oh and and nj ritz duretz okay who w i D-T-Z. That guy. <laughs> and, but, but he, but that's what he wants to do. And we, we got into a great conversation just as a quick little tangent. He goes, when, and when I'm a YouTuber, I'm not going to put ads on my videos because oh, I hate them. Interesting. And, I, and I'm like, okay, you can do that. That's not a problem. Of course, you're not going to get paid. He goes, what? I go, well, how do you think those guys get paid? And, and I said, by the way, if you're skipping past their videos, you're probably, you know, helping to give them even less money than if you watch the whole video. And, and he's like, well, how does that work? We had a whole conversation about the, uh, you know, how the, how the revenue flows through art, through advertising in that particular case. And by the time we were done, he was putting two or three uh, advertisements on every video that he was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll, he'll be the... First to see the next wave of what replaces advertising. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, the way that we know that it's coming is that, you know, uh, New York Times and Huffington Post and all these major news outlets have switched from having direct sales departments 
like groups of people selling ads directly to just mm-hmm. straight up Google. Like yeah. they're just running and and they're running smaller ad networks with aggressive advertising, the kind that pops out or jumps up or pop up window. I mean, they're oh the reason God. they're the reason why the common user it's already estimated that maybe 40% of people, tech-savvy people using the web, are already using an ad blocker. Yeah, absolutely. Which means, you know, like every time they're coming to, to you know, to Evolink or PVP or, or whatever, they're not, they're not uh, seeing an ad. And if they're not seeing an ad, nobody's getting paid. Um, but, you know, which is fine. It's like the, the, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, bemoaning it or saying they're the devil or whatever, which some people do. Um, but when these large outlets that are getting hundreds of millions of viewers start using the most aggressive form of advertising because they're they're run by you know CEOs and their corporations and they have shareholders and they have to show revenue so they're going to go for the highest revenue return ads p- possible and those are going to be the most aggressive ads possible that is going to drive the average user my mother you know mm-hmm. someone who would never use an ad blocker Somebody's going to invent a very simple ad blocking device, charge a buck for it, and they're going to sell it to my mom. And yeah. and at that point, the entire internet is going is going to go ad free. And it's not because there won't be ads there; it's because there won't be any money in advertising. And it's the, all going to get blocked. Yeah. And then the question becomes, what's next? I mean, Patreon is a good example, and YouTube now has their own version of of a direct fund. The idea of patronage is coming back, which is really interesting. Um, you know, it's an idea that hasn't been really fostered since the, I guess, the Renaissance. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like how long? Well, how long no, has it been? Look at look at public radio and television. Well, sure, right. I mean, that's been going on for for a long time. Or government funded stuff, like you know, like most arts in the in the, in the UK. Um, you know, is that is that going to come back? Uh, Subscription based is taking is replacing a lot of ad-based stuff and people are more willing to pay. And, and we're, as we become a credit card culture, people are more willing to do that. It's easier now than it used to be. Um, you know, the idea of a, of a micropayment is kind of coming back, even though a micropayment is kind of a macro payment these days because nobody's paying a penny. They're all paying five bucks. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, pay I th- 99 cents for things. Say again. People pay 99 cents for things. They do. Yeah. That still seems to be this weird number that, that everyone accepts as the gold standard of whatever, which just, just boggles my mind that that is, that is the one. They'll spend six bucks on a fucking cup of coffee, but they won't spend two ninety nine on a book. You know what I mean? Like that, oh, yeah, it, that boggles that I can't get around that. Remember when, Wait, I, somebody I read, uh, say, I, maybe it was Twitter it came across, but somebody made the point that if you're willing to spend two ninety nine on a, on gift wrapping, and three ninety nine on the card, but you're not willing to spend more than ninety nine cents for the book. There's something that's really, really wrong here. Yeah. Remember when uh, it might still be, but Big Mac was the was the ultimate unit of determining how bad a food was. Like, like <laughs> yeah. that that movie popcorn you're eating is like eating three Big Macs, and people go, "Oh, yeah. son of a bitch, three Big Macs." <laughs> <laughs> um, did you notice that Starbucks has become the new unit of what to sacrifice to buy something? Oh yeah, oh, right. yeah. it's just and a latte. Been, yeah, it's been like that way for a while now. It's it's this new unit of hey, why don't you not spend f- for the for the price? It used to be for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help yeah. this child, and now it's like right. maybe don't buy your third mocha today and <laughs> help me be a cartoonist. <laughs> uh, it's it's 
the popular, uh, you know, the populist drink. Just so like one on every corner. Just like well, from here. Guys, the, the funding model for coffee hasn't changed five times in the last twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> just, just the branding. Just the the. There's, rap. there's enough consistency there. Guys, yeah. do you think everybody's been trained to pay money for it? Do you guys think that Johannes Vermeer drank coffee by the bucket? Are you kidding? Oh my god! Uh, I don't think that it was terribly popular yet in Europe at that time. 18th well, century coffee was huge. Now hold on a second. Well, he at was, least he was caffeinated Dutch. tea. I was just being funny to bring it full circle. I didn't know you guys were actually going to try to answer the question. <laughs> well, hold on a Have second. Have you met us for a bunch well, of? Well, you know that's a, that's a, actually a very interesting conversation. In that, uh, I was just reading the other day about how, like, before the 1950s, Americans really weren't drinking coffee. And, you know, the coffee marketers were looking for a way to, to, to save their skins. And they took a look around and saw that, you know, other cultures were, that coffee, coffee was so ingrained that it was customary to take a break to have your coffee. And so they started putting tons of money into marketing coffee. And by the end of the 50s, you've got union uh, contracts written with coffee breaks written into the union contract. It became such a thing such a thing it was such a coffee in itself is such a successful marketing experiment uh bacon is the same way it's all marketing they made us they made us completely believe that we love bacon i just i'm glad i'm actually silence in response i'm pretty sure i was looking and Uh, i didn't i could i could take or leave bacon but i can't get on the internet without seeing bacon 10 times a day it's true Uh, i don't get it i'm gonna argue that Vermeer drank coffee because the I just looked up the etymology of coffee and uh-huh. it entered the English language in 1582 via the Dutch coffee. Oh, there you go. Uh, because they were the first ones to bring it from uh, from the Turks and and the Arabs. So uh, that's why when you said no, I didn't think coffee. I, yeah, man, the Dutch were they were the ones moving it around. Sure, but I'm I'm just trying to think about the history of coffee houses. And coffee that would have been affordable to merchant classes. Uh, well, it looks like the first coffee house was in Austria in 1683. You guys yeah, are nerds. So on the later end there. So the later end. But the East India, the Dutch East India Company was the first one moving that stuff around. And let's see. Coffee became available in England no later than 1583. Yeah, about the so, same about the same time that potatoes became a thing. Yeah, so he, I say he was drinking coffee, and if you only have that limited amount of light every day, right? <laughs> aren't you gonna just put some coffee down and try and really get to work there? Well, you don't want your hand to shake. Uh, that's true. <laughs> well, yeah, some of those brushes he had only had like one hair on them. He was using some really really small equipment. Oh yeah, that was crazy. Well, and let's note that I mean by by the end of that film. He had really done a lot of very impressive brushwork. Yeah. Like for for as mechanical as he had, you know, winnowed the process down to being, you couldn't give a four year old the materials that he had and gotten a, that the painting that he created out of it. There's no. still a certain amount of hand eye coordination. Yeah. And, Tim Tim <laughs> Jennison definitely became a painter by the end. Of, I would argue by the end of that mm-hmm. film. I think that he you could give him oils and a brush and he could do. He could probably do some pretty interesting, um, you know, representative work now because of his time. Uh, well, I don't, oh, isn't I don't that fascinating? I don't know, I don't know if I agree with that at all. Work. 
Because uh, observational for structural stuff is different from the kind of tone matching that he was doing. I think he probably has great technique. If you set him to paint um, like a model, like a model ship or a tank, uh-huh. I, I think he'd do an incredible job. Mm-hmm. Because he's got this great brushwork technique now. So now bringing this back around to the current generation, of, and it, I think we've all established that it, the idea of something being cheating versus efficiency is kind of uh, moot at this point. But for for uh, artists your age, Dylan, and younger, where these technologies, particularly now, there's a new wave of kids, right? The newest census is out, by the way, if anyone gives a shit. And 23-year-olds now make up the largest population in the United States, just FYI. Really? Okay. Yeah, there are, there are about 42 million 23-year-olds. Uh, second largest population would be people my age in their mid-30s. Um, but uh, here nor there, uh, it's an economist thing. We can talk about it later. But my point <laughs> being that these 23-year-olds have never known an existence without the internet and without, and the artists of them have never known an existence without Photoshop and now Manga Studio. Mm-hmm. In right. fact, most of them are learning to draw digitally in the beginning. And uh, if they're using Manga Studio in particular, they're learning to draw using the 3D models in Manga Studio. Mm-hmm. So the new style of drawing is to, is to essentially learn from model-based, almost like photo reference, but not quite. It's model-based tracing, essentially. Um, in 10 years, are we going to have a generation of of uh, artists who cannot put pencil to paper and no. depict something? No. No, because everybody starts by tracing stuff, whether it's, you know, finished line art or... So then why you do know. you think that Tim Jennison can't pick up a brush and paint something? Because he didn't practice art. He only practiced uh, matching colors at the edge of a mirror. Mm. I don't know. I would use the same argument for somebody that's tracing something in Manga Studio. No, because even tracing something in Manga Studio, you're you're taking in more of the piece at a time than just one little spot. I don't know. If you can zoom in to that level... Maybe we should test it. Maybe I should open Manga Studio and we'll spend a month blogging while I learn to draw. <laughs> and then we'll see if I can draw at the end. No, you do not. No. Four, we'll take four years. We'll start no. a documentary. Your time will I refuse. You're fired. <laughs> I fire you from that portion of your job. He's just I, worried that I'm going to get better I, than it, he is. It'd be, it'd be interesting to talk to Tim about it and see what he picked up. But... I mean, certainly I think that if he sat down and started practicing away from the lens, because there, there are skills that you pick up for observing and recreating. For example, okay, if you're going to recreate a face looking at it, one of the things you do is you learn the proportions of a face, mm-hmm. right? And, and how to break Wait, You're down talking a face. about the actual objective mechanical proportions of a face. Yeah, I mean, the, for the most part, the eyes are halfway down the f- head, and you know, yeah, you, they're you one eye that, space draw apart. The shape, and then you put the vertical line, and you put the horizontal line. Wait, the, you, the way everybody starts out with it. You have to learn how to combat your brain's systematic processing of a particular kind of information, because we all perceive faces not in their photographic reality, but we, you know, we 
compress the data massively. We read it for expression. Do I know this person? Uh, is there anything weird that might be unhealthy about that face? Nope. Okay, cool. But there's a reason why eyewitnesses are such poor testimony givers and why we can fail to recognize people we've met before because we don't actually have cameras in our brains. And learning how to do representative art from looking up at something, it's a cognitive challenge. You know, people naturally draw the way kids naturally draw, which is in a very symbolic, simplified, cognitive-friendly way. And yeah. I think the yeah. point of Tim's documentary was that these masters, including Vermeer, removed that challenge. Yeah. By not ha by, and the reason why they were able to recreate these things so perfectly was because they they bypassed that part of the process in in lieu of using this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's not he didn't develop any of those observational skills or tricks because he doesn't have to use them. That's the point. And if you think about art po after Vermeer, the shift in art, then that's when you got into the hard representative guys, right? The Renoir and uh my art Van history Gogh. is my art history is not good enough to comment on that, but Dylan, Dylan, do you remember? I'm pretty sure that right... You're, you're asking for Impressionists? Well, right after Vermeer, it was it would have been no. Impressionism, right? No, there was some other I stuff. think there was a little while before Impressionism <laughs> came around. The Impressionism was 19th century for the most part, so you got a few hundred years in between there. So what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get at, though, is what I'm trying to ask is, mm -hmm. was there some point in which the the art community these new this new wave of artists so a new generation of artists said i don't like that or that's not art or that you know that's there's no representation there it's just it is just a photo that kind of thing uh, almost in the same way in today you see it, using photo as an example today in photo or even in film we we started to talk briefly about the documentary that keanu reeves did about uh, film and what is real um it's you're it's rare to find a photo these days that is not heavily heavily doctored mm -hmm. um you know is there going to be a hard shift in the opposite direction um in the verisimilitude well in the and, and that that's my <laughs> For next question straight from too. camera right <laughs> so then the question becomes is post vermeer and and the masters was there then the reason why the impressionism came on so strong a few hundred years later because Everything was so spot on, real. Well, I part mean, of part of why impressionism happened is that photography happened. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Yeah, new technology. I mean, look at look at what the point of painting was in previous centuries. Why did why did you commission a painting? Uh, it was to have a likeness. Uh, you were a rich person. You wanted to commemorate. You know the way your family looked. It was uh, it was a record. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you would stuff some symbolism in there to indicate, oh, this person is powerful or, you know, you'd want your favorite dog to be in there. Um, but but for the most part, they were just really fancy family photos or they were uh, idealized depictions of important cultural events or stories that everybody was familiar with. Uh, you know, when photography started to hit, painting lost the necessity of being the only medium of ego. Right. 
<laughs> right? You could get your portrait taken. Like, there was a craze in the Victorian era for everybody would give each other these little carte de visite, these little visiting cards that would have your photo on it. And everybody would spend half an hour looking at each other's photos and cooing over them. <laughs> so, you know, if you're a portrait painter, oh, okay, well... What are you what are you doing now? What do you have to offer that you know a photograph doesn't? Some of the values began to shift, and that's when you start to get people going, well, what can I do with painting that photography doesn't do? Or photography can't do. That photography can't do. I know. I can basically create the cognitive impression that an image gives people that can somehow contain the essence of what you're looking at without all of the realist detail. Mm. So that's when you start getting impressions. And it pissed people off because they're like, this painting isn't finished. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. It looks funny. This looks funny. You didn't, well, it, like, you didn't add the detail. Where you, is it? Your brush but, strokes are so fat. Yeah. This is, this is, impressionism was not a compliment. It was a slur originally. Mm-hmm. Because well, and, of the, and it was seen as lazy. <laughs> <laughs> think about it, though. Think think about, okay, so go from Impressionism all the way to modern art. And what is the number one criticism that every, uh, you know, Joe Sixpacks uses when he looks at modern art? My, My five-year-old kid yeah. could do that. And, and the interesting thing that this Vermeer documentary does is, in at least in my mind, it says, you know, I could, I could actually imagine taking a very, very young kid or, or a guy like Tim who had no artistic background whatsoever, you know, a, a neutral person and show them the process. And I could very easily think, okay, uh, I, I can see them coming out with something that they, uh, uh, you know, they, they can uh, make an image out of, right? But then you take a look at a Jackson Pollock or, or some, some of these modern art uh, uh, type of uh, bellwethers, and that takes so much more creativity and so much more thinking outside of the box that that really is the, the, the fine art and not, the, not so much the Dutch masters. So mm. then the, the question coming is, with the way technology has progressed now, what's next in, in the modern day? Oh, well, things are looking good for cartoonists. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to, be a, seems to be a new acceptable art form, right? Like everybody seems to be reading comics now. Well, I, don't know, I don't know about that. but It's gained a lot more acceptance than it used to have. That is for sure. Right. Absolutely. No? Boy, I just brought that conversation <laughs> to a screeching halt. <laughs> you think no, Scott? No, I thought that's how Dylan felt. Oh, that that uh, cartooning or non-realist depictions of things are on on the the uptick. Yeah, absolutely. I think society is skewing much more visual, and we're all getting used to seeing things that are not just photographic and lush in their detail. Like, look look at the two directions CGI animation has gone in. Oh, One is hyper-realistic effects for quote-unquote live-action films, mm -hmm. and the other is very stylized animation for stuff like frozen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and physical effects versus digital effects as well. The idea that people are going back now to using actual physical models and things versus doing the just pure CGI 
Sure, but we all care less about whether something is quote-unquote real or not. Yeah, I think that's the big thing, right? Is that the, this idea of real or or fake or cheating or, you know, or efficient. Is, that's, that's all kind of blending together now. The only people that I seem to see that, that get their panties in a twist about it are the non-artists. <laughs> people that don't actually do it that seem to, to be... That's very true. There, there's always this wave of moral outrage from from viewing populace versus the the art populace. Like you, I rarely hear an artist say to another artist, "Like you used a light board." Well, that's cheating. <laughs> well, no, there, there, uh, there's definitely an essentialist streak in some cartooning where using a photo reference is very much looked down on, and I, I think a lot of that comes from. Just different technical backgrounds and the idea that you need to have absolute technical proficiency so that you don't need a ton of reference in order to bang your work out. You know, that's, that's kind of an animation thing. Um, but, you know, in, in comics, as long as the audience experience is seamless, as long as it's not disrupted by what you're sourcing things from, you know, I don't really care. Do you think there's a degradation though? And that is sourcing as the new generation of artists is sourcing from a source. I know Miyazaki uh, recently was on record being kind of huffy about the state of manga and anime in Japan, because uh, he says that the current generation of animators are learning how to animate from old animations instead of learning how to animate from going out into the world. Yeah, from seeing what people right. look he, like. Well, they're they're yeah, all important. Yeah. He says otaku are the problem. Otaku being the, their word for like nerd or geek. That they are the issue because they're the ones going into the field, and and all of their experience in the field and you know in life and what they create in their new works of manga and anime is based on old manga and anime, versus based on you know go out on a street corner and draw somebody. Draw, right, that, draw what you see, draw, derive from what you see in the but world. But that's copying a copy. And I think that's what people get frustrated about is when you lose fidelity and the audience starts to have a poorer experience too because things become divorced from, I don't know, a content authenticity. My blood sugar is low, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap it up then so Dylan doesn't pass out. <laughs> yes. Mm, <laughs> delicate flower. Uh, it was it was so good having you on the show, Dylan. <laughs> totally. You will, uh, you'll have to come back. Okay. Indeed. I'll do it. Did we lose Scott? No. Scott, is your blood sugar low? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one fueled by cr- coffee and adrenaline right now. We need a glucose meter, obviously. <laughs> I have <laughs> not had any. I have not any coffee over. this morning. If that makes a difference uh, that's gonna be it you gotta go get the, the that's cafe, problem man the kofi if you will i needed to support a cartoonist <laughs> so i gave up a latte today yeah how many lattes <laughs> worth of coffee are you oh god here I'll, I'll end with this anecdote i was at a gallery a few years ago that uh, a friend of mine is on the board for uh, and he had his birthday party there and he was, he was basically hitting up all of his friends for donations to the gallery, which was fine. Like it's a cool place. Everybody thinks it's neat that he's involved, but he zeroes in on me and he's like, how about you, Dylan? You want to, you want to support the gallery? And I was like, man, if I want to support an artist, I just buy myself a sandwich. (laughs) 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 And there, he like blinked for a moment and then he cracked up and made a beeline away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to use that sometime. Yeah, I was like, well, 
I'm a jerk, but I wasn't lying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank talk you. To you. We'll talk yeah. to you next week. <laughs> That's the worst outro. T- Tim's Vermeer. You can watch it on Google Play or right. Amazon or uh, the iTunes Store. Any any of those. Tim's Vermeer. Uh, check it out. It's a great documentary. We told them to check it out last week. Though. We did. They should have watched it already. That was their homework. Well, watch was... it again. <laughs> I actually saw people tweeting that they were doing their homework. I was really kind of uh, encouraged by that. Excellent. As they Everybody should. submit your book reports. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but don't cheat. Don't steal it from somebody. <laughs> don't copy someone else's book report. Well, now that's plagiarism. That's a totally different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week for a conversation about plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> I've got stories. Thank you so much for joining us this week for another episode of Surviving Creativity. Remember, we're now available on iTunes. Just head on over to the store and search Surviving Creativity. You can subscribe to the podcast there. It will automatically update your iTunes library when a new episode becomes available. Special thanks this week to our guest, Dylan McConus. Be sure to head to her website, dylanmaconis.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N-M-E-C-O-I-N-S, where you can check out all of her work. As always, this show is made possible by listeners like you, so if you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity, and please consider becoming a patron. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week on Surviving Creativity.